Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. John 8. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John 8. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teach her. This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger rode on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage that you would bless us, that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So a few words about the text we're looking at this morning. If you are looking at the New American Standard 95 text, you see that all of the texts that we just read are uh, bounded by brackets. So right before 753 and right at the end of 11, there are brackets. And then this note is placed in the margin. It says later manuscripts, or later MSS, that's manuscripts, add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 753 to 811. In other words, the oldest copies of scripture that we have found do not have this text in them. A papyrus from around 200, one of the earliest copies of scripture we have, does not have it. It is not found in Aleph, which is an uncial, where all the Greek letters are in capitals. Uh, It's written on parchment, dated about the 4th century. Very important manuscript. It's the entire New Testament. It does not have it. Um, It's... um, 
Scholars also like to point out that this text seems to interrupt the flow of the text uh, going from 752 to 812 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It seems they say the flow works better if you go from 752 and it seems like this text was just stuck in there somehow. Um, But I think the flow works as it is. Uh, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in our passage and the woman caught in adultery served to give context to Jesus' statement that he's the light of the world and those who follow him will not walk in darkness. I mean, that's what the woman caught in adultery needs to hear. Uh, Scholars also like to point out that the actual Greek in this section, uh, 753 to 811, is a bit unusual for John. Uh, There are words here in this section that are not found in any of John's other works, other writings. Uh, That's interesting, but but I don't think it's very persuasive. Uh, There are times, there have been times when I've written something, when I use a word I've never used before and don't use it again, right? I mean, you just, you learn the, the definition of word, you work it into something, and then you forget the definition of the word and never use it again. Uh, I mean, that that doesn't prove too much. A couple other points about this text. Augustine and Ambrose, so we're talking 4th century, uh, were well aware of this text and stated that it was removed from copies of Scripture by certain individuals because they feared that women would appeal to this story as an excuse for their infidelity. So that's what that that was Augustine's explanation. He considered it scripture, but there were there was a reason why it was taken out of here, and that was because women would read it and just be um, affirmed in committing adultery. Now remember, during Augustine and Ambrose's time, fourth century church extreme asceticism was was very much a part of, was very much prevalent. You might recall my Sunday school lesson on Chrysostom and his asceticism. And so this redaction or censorship can't entirely be dismissed. That might be why it didn't appear in those uh, passages or in those, uh, those manuscripts. The text is found in the authorized version, so if you are one of the elite and are carrying a King James Bible this morning, an authorized version, um, it's found there because that that, uh, translation is built off of the textus receptus, right? The the, um, Greek manuscripts that were available to Erasmus that he put together and uh, it became the basis. It is in that, and so there, there may be no markings in the text in the authorized version there. Hence the statement in the NASB 95 that older manuscripts add the text. Um, this, the section of text does not present anything out of character from Jesus or other men. It doesn't seem strange in any way, right? It is not like if you go read some of the early uh, Gnostic texts on Jesus where they're very strange and Jesus is doing magic tricks and 
I mean, just weird stuff's happening. Things about Jesus' childhood that don't appear in this text. And they're very wild, and they're very wild because those Gnostics were pushing an agenda. Right? This text feels authentic in a likely report of an event that, that happened. The Gnostic texts read like, like fakes, like fairy tales. Uh, this text gets the character of the Pharisees correct as well, and the love of our Savior correct as well. A couple more points on this. Um, Papias, a disciple of the Apostle John, so this would be someone who had contact with John, seems to, seems to have known this story and to have expounded it. Uh, the early church historian Eusebius says the same writer, Papias, has expounded another story about a woman who, has accused, who was accused before the Lord of many sins, which the gospel according to the Hebrews contains. Now, the gospel according to the Hebrews, what's that? Well, I don't know. Um, in other words, he expounded it, but Papias found it in a different gospel, um, something other than John's gospel. Perhaps it had already been removed when Papias was looking at it from John's gospel, put in this Hebrew gospel, and uh, it had been removed by these overscrupulous redactors I already mentioned. So, all of that to say that there have been a lot of arguments about this text and whether it is scripture, whether it is authentic. I think uh, this is where I fall on that question. I think we should view it as scripture because we have no definitive way of proving it was originally in the Gospel of John and no definitive way of proving that it wasn't originally in the Gospel of John. We just have no way of proving this. Um, Kistemacher in his commentary says, we believe moreover that what is recorded really took place and contains nothing that is in conflict with the apostolic spirit. Hence, instead of removing this section from the Bible, it should be retained and used for our benefit. Ministers should not be afraid to base sermons upon it, he puts exclamation point. On the other hand, all the facts concerning the textual evidence should be made known if he's preaching it. So I followed his orders, and that's what I've just done. <laughs> um, what did reformers like John Calvin say about this text? He writes essentially what Kistemacher just said. Here's Calvin from his commentary. It makes me think that Kistemacher stole this from Calvin. Um, here's what Calvin says in his commentary on John. He says, It is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches, and some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there's no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. So the reformers saw this as, as scripture and took it as scripture. If you are not using the NASB 95 or a Bible that is based upon more the text critical edition or more recently discovered older manuscripts, there may be no note about this at all, right? There, you may not see anything in there that mentions this at all. 
Most versions, though, even the New King James Version, uh, will make some mention of this text in that way. So with that, let's move on uh, and move forward. And uh, treating this as scripture, we look to the Lord to feed us on it and to improve us by it. Okay? So back in chapter 7, Jesus, remember, had been doing battle with the Pharisees, which is sort of the mode he was in with the Pharisees all through the three years of his ministry. They Remember, they had sent soldiers to arrest him, and what had happened with those soldiers? Well, they, they heard him speak, and they were like, man, no one speaks like this guy. He speaks with authority, and they came back to the Pharisees and scribes and didn't have Jesus with them. Um, Nicodemus stepped in then and defended Jesus, and those Pharisees attack him. Right? You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Search the scriptures and you'll see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. We went through all of that a few weeks ago. Now from there, the Sanhedrin disbands and they go home. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Then from there he heads to the area of the temple. Remember, he had been in the temple the day before, so he went off to the Mount of Olives to be alone, I assume to pray to his father, and then he comes back to the temple. Once again, not fearing the Pharisees, he begins to teach the people, and they are standing, he is seated. And Spurgeon makes this humorous comment about this fact in his commentary, or his words on scripture, he says this, that is always the posture in the East. The teachers sit and the hearers stand. We may have to try out that plan one of these days. It might be better for me and also for you. There might be less drowsiness, perhaps, if the congregation had to stand to listen to the preacher's message. So shall we give that a try today? I'll take a seat on a cushy chair and you guys can stand up. Um, I just find I, Spurgeon's always like that. He, he was a funny guy, and he's always putting comments in there like that. Um, but along come the scribes and Pharisees again. Remember, they had sent soldiers to detain him. The soldiers had been awed by his authority. Now they arrive taking to Jesus this case of discipline. Their motives are not pure. Right? Their motives are not genuine. They have no compassion for this woman, and they do not seek to lead her to repentance or to minister to her for her good. They, as verse 6 says, brought her to Jesus and told him about her sins because they were testing Jesus. Testing him so that they might have grounds, the text says, for accusing him. They wanted to have something on Jesus so that they could take him before the court and be done with him. They wanted some dirt to bring charges. And they were trying to get him to give an answer that would contradict God's law. Having seen how Jesus had influenced the soldiers, they would break his influence by pointing out that this man, this Jesus, was a sinner who was countermanding the purity of God's law, or so they thought. So in order to entice Jesus, they pull this, this sinful woman before Jesus. They do not care about her. They simply are using her. 
right? They're using her as a means to an end. They put her right in the center of the courts, right in the center of everything. They expose her sins publicly even before it appears she had been tried. It's worth saying at this point that the elders, you know, the elders of the church, elders of churches have to be very careful about their, their discipline of, of members, right? Um, very careful about how they talk about it. Until excommunication, which generally ought to be handled publicly, the elders must protect the reputation of those who have sinned and are being disciplined. Right? They have to protect their reputation. They must even protect the reputation of those who have sinned and are either informal or informal discipline. And that can be very tricky at times because members observe things and members talk to members. And, and, um, and members conclude that these, what are the elders doing about this? It seems like the elders are very inactive. And there's this, this scandal going on, right? And perhaps that is the case. The elders may be inactive, but it may also be the case that they are being discreet, right? They are just being discreet and loving sinners by protecting their reputation, by giving them space to repent, right? It's only in cases where someone is recalcitrant and formally unrepentant that scripture tells us to rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest also will be a fearful of sinning, okay? And so the Pharisees are not doing this. The Pharisees, even before this woman has been ministered to or tried, are dragging her out, it seems, right from the act and exposing her sins publicly. They are not protecting her reputation. The scribes and Pharisees... um, saw that she was an opportunity to trap Jesus that was so appealing to them that they, they lost any sympathy for that woman. And, and that is true of the self-righteous, isn't it? The self-righteous will often use people as tools for their wicked plots. They don't think they can do anything wrong because they are so principled Right? That's what the self-righteous believe about themselves. Thinking too highly of themselves, they utterly lack human compassion. They drag her, the Pharisees drag her before Jesus and, and say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This woman had sinned, it appears. I don't think they're manufacturing her sin. She had sinned. She had committed adultery. Somehow she was caught in the very act of having sex with some other adulterer. And he's he's not brought before Jesus, just the woman. She was a married woman, hence it's called adultery. And the judicial law of Israel, right, did stipulate the death penalty for men and women who broke the seventh commandment. Leviticus 20.10, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, 
One who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's the penalty. That's the judicial penalty of breaking the seventh commandment, God's moral law. On the other hand, remember that the Romans had suspended those laws. They came in and said, no, all of your capital punishment, no, you don't get that anymore. We'll do the capital punishing. You don't get that anymore. They were not permitted to put anyone to death, which we read about when they are trying to get the Romans to kill Jesus, doing for them what they had forbidden them, right? And so the Pharisees thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he spoke for the death penalty, he was countermanding the authority of Rome. If he spoke for against the death penalty, he was placing Rome's authority above God's law. Either way, they thought, we'll make Jesus an enemy of some power, whatever he answers. Or, or this is going on, they simply hated what Jesus had been preaching up to that point in his life. Think about this. What did he had been preaching? He had been preaching that he came to save sinners. And that it was not the righteous that he came for, but for the sick. And so they thought they would use the law of God to make Jesus out to be a justice man and not a grace man. Right? They, they were going to completely counteract all of his preaching up to that point and show Jesus for what he truly was. Calvin says that the test of the Pharisees was to make Jesus look like a hypocrite for all of his talk of saving sinners. They wanted Jesus to consent to the law and undermine, undermine, in a sense, his redemptive message. So how does Jesus respond? He who is the Logos, he who is wisdom itself, how does he respond? He shows, first of all, that he absolutely despises these men. He says nothing to them, but bends down and starts pushing around the dirt on the ground. He just bends down and starts playing with the dirt. Right? I don't think he was writing anything, but I, I know I'm not a big fan of, of um, uh, chiastic structures and you know mystery readings and this and that. And, I don't think he was writing in Hebrew or some prophetic message or making a reference to an Old Testament verse. Regardless, we don't know what he wrote, and so any, any you know, determination of that is pure speculation. We know that his finger went in the dirt and it moved the dirt around. Okay? I think he was showing disdain for these men by not answering them, by bending down, by turning away his eyes, and just playing in the dirt. He was showing the people around who were observing that what these men said was uninteresting and unimportant to him, at least for a time. Jesus was the one who spoke with authority. These men were those who spoke without authority. He's blowing them off. It's as if he's, he, he were turning his back to them as they were speaking to him. I know that when my kids are blowing me off, Pastors' kids, they're always examples in sermons, sorry. Um, 
I know when my kids are blowing me off, they look away or get back to what they were doing even while I'm speaking to them, even and often with a raised voice. And so that, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. These guys are, are shouting at him for an answer, and he just he, he ignores them. You know what point Calvin goes on to make out of this action of Jesus. He says, this is how we ought to be when false teachers come along. When Satan tempts, attempts by various methods to draw us aside from the right way of teaching, we ought disdainfully to pass by many things which he holds out to us. Right? That's the way to, to resist false teaching. It's not, not to get all like, oh, that's fascinating, but just to be like, stupid. That is stupid. It, I mean, it, it doesn't even deserve my attention. I'm not even going to think about it. Blech. Kindergartner sort of stuff, right? That's what Calvin is recommending for us to uh, pass by false teaching. Jesus, in his action of bending down and sweeping his fingers through the dirt, is abhorring what is evil, and these men are evil. Why does he despise these men? Because they are the, and, and we're going to camp out here a bit, because they are hypocrites. They are hypocrites. While they are seeking to put him to death, remember, they're trying to put him to death. They act like they are scandalized by this woman's sin. Right? They, they've got planks protruding from their eyes, right? And Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, sees their self-righteousness, sees their sin, which is greater than this woman's, and he sees all of their evil motives. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever been in a situation like that? A situation where you are indignant about some small sin where, while you've been committing some rather gross larger sin. Have you ever been there? Can I ask for a show of hands? What hand is not going to go up? If your hand doesn't go up, you're a Pharisee. Right? I mean, indignant about government overreach while... You're the worst kind of despot in your own home, commanding this and getting angry about that. But then when you're public, you're, you know, that overbearing, despot, tyrannical overreach. Right? I mean, that's me. Verse 7 makes it clear that Jesus ignored them for quite some time. Right? But when they persisted in asking him, so he's just down there, not paying, not looking at him, hand in the dirt, bent knees. He's in, but they kept asking him. And then it says he straightened up and spoke. Very interesting to me, that action of this verse. The, the Pharisees persist, shall we stone her? What does the law say, Jesus? Shall we let her go, huh, huh? What, what do you think should be done here, Jesus? And Jesus straightens up, right? He gets up, buttons his, his, his jacket pocket, 
right? Puts his robes in order, whatever. Moves his eyes up and makes eye contact with them. And makes eye contact with that woman caught in adultery. And then he speaks. And what he says is wisdom, right? What he says is one of these times where everybody's trying to trap him and he says something that absolutely shuts their mouths, right? He says, he who is without sin among you Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what is astonishing about that response? It splits the hair. Right? It splits the hair. He doesn't dismiss her sin, and he doesn't dismiss the law and its stipulations. He doesn't undermine anything here. And and don't forget this. The law taught that Think of this, the law taught that the witnesses were to be the ones who would carry out the punishment of the sentence. If you witnessed against somebody in a capital trial, you would be the one to throw the stones and kill the person accused. That's genius, right? That is genius law, right? The witnesses were to be the executioners. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, Deuteronomy 17.7. Those who make accusations must be careful because they will have the action of the sentence on their conscience. And I don't think Jesus is being generic here. I don't think he's saying, like, like if, if you've sinned, you can't cast a, ch- a stone, because that would forbid anybody ever being a judge in any context ever, because all have sinned. Right? I think he's aiming at the scribes and Pharisees' own violations of the seventh commandment. Right? They themselves were guilty of the very thing of which they were accusing this woman. Right? Some of them were being, some of those Pharisees were, were then and there being unfaithful to their wives. Some of them had visited prostitutes. Right? Some of them had multiple wives. Some of them had lusted in their hearts for women other than their wives. Right? He, he's confronting their adulteries. Ryle writes, J.C. Ryle writes, many think that when our Lord said, he that is without sin, he meant the expression to be taken in a general sense. I cannot hold this view. It would involve the awkward conclusion that no one could be a judge at all or punish a criminal because no one is altogether and absolutely without sin. I am decidedly of the opinion that our Lord referred to sin against the seventh commandment. There's too much reason to think that such sin was very common among the Jews in our Lord's time. The expression, an adulterous generation, is full of meaning. Right? We always take it when Jesus says this is a, an adulterous generation, that he's speaking generically like this is an idolatrous but, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's this, this 
generation is just filled with adulterers, those who, who, who sin against one another sexually. I mean, think of the passage in Romans where the Apostle Paul is, is calling out the hypocrisy of the Jews, right? Apply it to this passage. Romans 2.17 says this, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, be instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Right there, reformed, these Jews were early reformed Christians. They got all, all their ducks in a row, right? They're just, they, everything's in order. You therefore who teach one another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. I mean, did you hear what Jesus said about the Jew, or Paul said about the Jews of his time? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Right? He's, he's, he's pointing out their hypocrisy, and Jesus is doing the same thing with these Pharisees. Now, let's turn the guns on ourselves. Right? And not let us live in our own hypocrisy. You who protest outside of abortion clinics, do you look at pornography? You who call people to refrain from sexual immorality, do you refrain yourself from sexual immorality? Right? I know, I know, it's not fair. It's not fair, is it? I mean, who doesn't sin sexually? Who, who properly possesses their vessel without stumbling? Right? But that's precisely what Jesus is doing. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing to his kinsmen, the Jews, in the book of Romans. Calvin, whose commentary on this section of Scripture is very helpful, I'm leaning heavily upon it. Calvin says, Now what he said at that time to a few persons we ought to view as spoken to all, that whoever accuses another ought to impose on himself a law of innocence. Otherwise, we do not pursue wicked actions, but rather are hostile to the persons of men. In this way, let me read this long section from Calvin. Stick with me. In this way, however, Christ appears to take out of the world all judicial decisions, so that no man shall dare to say that he has a right to punish crimes. For shall a single judge be found who is not conscious of having something that is wrong? Shall a single witness be produced who is not chargeable with some fault? He appears, therefore, to forbid all witness to give public testimony and all judges to occupy the judgment seat. I reply, this is not an absolute and unlimited prohibition by which Christ forbids sinners to do their duty in correcting the sins of others. But by this word... Now listen to this. But by this word, he only reproves hypocrites who mildly flatter themselves and their vices 
but are excessively severe and even act the part of felons in censuring others. Right? Very easy and soft on ourselves, but very hard and intense against others. No man, he goes on, therefore, shall be prevented by his own sins from correcting the sins of others and even from punishing them when it may be found necessary, provided that both in himself and in others he hates what, he, what ought to be condemned. And in addition to all this, every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he come to others. In this manner shall we, without hating men, make war with sin. Now that's the second time he said that, that hypocrites fight against principles and ignore people, right? They, they shoot for principles and ignore people, right? He says hypocrites begin hating men, right? And, and not hating sin. And he's saying, no, we should battle against sin and be compassionate towards sinners, right? He is saying that. So think about that. Brothers and sisters, if we find ourselves condemning in others what we won't condemn in ourselves, that is the path that leads to making war with other people but avoiding war against sin. It becomes about dragging other people down. You, be, you don't become principled about sin. You just drag other people's down because you're protecting your own right to indulge in that sin. Hypocrisy leads us to harden ourselves against people and soften ourselves with regard to the evil of sin. Another way to put it is this. Hypocrites entirely lack self-awareness. They've lived their lives picking away at others and their sins while they've been blind themselves to their own. We're all like this to a certain extent, aren't we? I mean, it should make you want to vomit how often we are like this, railing against sins that we are the, the chief of sinners in. And so in that case, we become these accusers of people. We just become haters of people, haters of people who are committing this sin. Not even really hating the sin because we actually love it. We're doing it in our closed rooms by, by ourselves. The proof of this is that our own sins are exempted from our hatred of sin. You know, some of us grew up with mothers or fathers who were hypocrites. Like, like capital H hypocrites. Some of us grew up with parents like that. In fact, all of us to a certain extent did. And we suffer under that hypocrisy, right? They were at times adamant that we stop this or that or, you know, and, and we, we thought they, you know, they didn't try to understand us and they didn't try to understand us because they were, we saw, committing the very same sins. So like these adulterous Pharisees, they... They forgot their own sins and the fact that they were dealing with actual persons. They lost compassion even for their own children, right? Their own children, <clears throat> excuse me, because their hypocrisy required that they rage. 
Hypocrisy requires that you rage against sin. Hypocrisy has no compassion because hypocrites intend to cover their sins, not with love, but with indignation. That was the Pharisees that day. Some of you lived under parents who were like that, or still do. Some of you see it in your parents. And now it's your task to forgive them for it, which is very difficult. It's your task to forgive your parents' hypocrisy. But that was the Pharisees that day. They would, they would run roughshod over this woman if it meant, A, they could trap Jesus, and B, it would mean their own sins would be obscured by pointing hers out. And so I ask again, you who protest outside of abortion clinics, do you look at pornography? You who make a demonstration of your patriarchy, is your home a cesspool of sexual sin? Right? You, you who make uh, big demonstrations of your love publicly, are, you, are your very own children in your home unloved? On and on and on I could go along these lines, right? We could talk about what we become publicly that we aren't privately. And we would just all be, what we would find is that we're all hypocrites, but that we're all known to be against the sins that we most commit. That's, that's the game we're playing. That's the game these Pharisees are playing. We caught her in the very act and we brought her out here. And the law says that she should be put to death. And what are we going to do? And they're adulterers. Root out hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will make a monster of you. It will absolutely make a monster of you. It will make you look so righteous but you'll just be filled with dead men's bones. The Apostle Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. We must mature so that we can recognize when we are flattering ourselves while being severe with others committing the same sin. Find that. Root it out of your life. Root it out. Hate it. And then Jesus returns to the ground. <laughs> he stands up, he straightens himself up, he says this one sentence, it blows their minds, basically. And then he just goes right back down onto, you know, sitting on his heels and playing in the dirt. Sweeping his fingers through the dirt again. And the scribes and the Pharisees, you note, do what? They begin slinking out one by one. It's interesting that it mentions the older ones go out first. Why do you think it is that the older ones went out first? Well, perhaps it is because the older ones are more aware of their hypocrisy, having been caught in it a time or two. Um, I think the young are particularly prone to hypocrisy. The young are prone to hypocrisy. I mean, how many of us, when we were young men and women, could rail against this or that even while we were indulging ourselves in that very thing? Become very publicly principled and then go home and lack strength to, to oppose it. I mean, 
The other reason why the eldest would leave first is because they would, they would have a greater number of sins on their conscience. They've had a lifetime of sins. And, they were on, and it was on their conscience, and so they, they, they bailed. They got out. This was convicting to them. But what should those men have done on that day? Slink out and away from the presence of Jesus? No. No, you know what they should have done. They should have fallen before Jesus and pleaded that he would forgive them. They should have just fallen down and said, God, forgive me. I'm a hypocrite. I am a terrible hypocrite. I have committed the same sins that this woman who was caught in adultery commits. And I did and, and name the sins. Instead, their shame and their conscience, though convicted, led them away from Christ, not to him. And that is how it goes sometimes. But conviction of conscience is not enough to save a man. You can have compunctions of conscience. You can have convictions of conscience all the time. But that does not save a man. Shame doesn't always lead to a fear of God. Sometimes it just makes a man hide even more his sins. As these Pharisees, they get away and continue their, what? Their drive to kill Jesus Christ. They all leave and Jesus and the woman then are left there. Right in the center of the court. Jesus once again rises up and speaks and says to the woman, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she replies, no one, Lord. Notice she calls him Lord. She understands something about his authority at the very least. Jesus finishes with words that all sinners should long to hear. Right? I do not condemn you either. Go from now on sin no more. Well, actually we like the first half. We don't really like the second half, do we? Go and sin no more. Go and give up all those things that pleasure you, pleasure your flesh. Go and give up all that wonderful uh, anger that makes you feel good as it rises up in your heart. But notice this. Jesus does not exonerate her from her sin. He says, from now on, sin no more. But he does not act as her judge at this point. The scribes and the Pharisees had taken on the task of judge and executioner. Jesus, who was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, was not sent to judge, but was sent to save sinners. He does not pronounce this judgment of execution on her. He is not trying to tell us. You know, some have taken this passage and, and think of what Augustine and, and Ambrose says. This, about the redactors who took this passage out because they, they believed it would promote adultery. Jesus is nowhere in this passage promoting adultery at all, right? It, it, he's, he's not trying to tell us that the sin of adultery is not sin. He is not trying to present a new and better law than that of his father. He is not put, pitting grace against law, 
He is not saying that she didn't sin or didn't deserve the punishment. He is simply saying that the case has not been proven. He is saying that he is not there to act as a judge. That is not what he came for. He didn't come to be that kind of judge. He had come to save sinners, not act as a tribunal in this particular case. I mean, think of those, those rich brothers that came and said, Jesus, uh, how should we divide the inheritance? And what does Jesus say? Who made me an arbiter between you two? Well, Jesus is, I mean, the theonomic Jesus would be that. I mean, yeah, that's gospel issue. You know, dividing inheritance. You got to follow the, the scripture and who knows scripture better than Jesus? Well, Jesus is like, no, that's not my office. That's not why I'm here. That's what he's saying to this woman. It's not my office. I'm not the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus was exhorting her to, to, to sin no more. She had... she must not continue to do as she had done. It was her job to forsake her sin of adultery by faith. She must go from Jesus now, from his loving protection on that day, from adulterous accusers, and hate her sin and desire to commit it no more. That's what he's telling her to do. He's essentially telling her to go and repent. To sin no more, to hate your sin, to go and repent. Right? At other times, Jesus undoubtedly speaks of his mercy towards sinners. Here in this place, he does not. He does not speak of that. But he does not act as a judge toward the woman. He exhorts her to sin no more. He is, in other words, urging her repentance. What she did from that day forward would exhibit to her accusers, to her family, to herself... Right, whether she had a genuine Christian faith or not. She would be known by her fruit. And the fruit of faith would be a hatred and turning from her adulterous affairs. She would go and commit this sin no more. Proof of her repentance would be hating this sin and running in an entirely different direction. Right? Is that depressing? Is it depressing to you that she would somehow, by the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body and not return to a sin that is so defiling? Oh, that should excite you. That should give you hope. That should make you um, trust God that, that when you repent of your sins, what it will mean is an actual turning away from sin. Right? And Jesus tells her to go and do that. He's being very... He's being very careful with her. He's being very careful, as he was always careful, right? Not to undermine his father's holy law, right? Not to give her false assurance. Not to um, make, make adultery just this non-sin. He's not doing all that. He has split the hair in this whole passage, right? But the wonderful thing is this. Whereas the Pharisees dragged her out publicly and shamed her, he tells her privately to go and sin no more. Right? He deals with her compassionately. Go and sin no more. 
right? Maybe they had interaction in days to come. I don't know. We don't know. Maybe she repented. We don't know. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she went further into her adulteries. But that day, Jesus was, was genuinely preaching to her the doctrine of repentance. And it was hers to go out. But he does it tenderly as a man who came not to judge but to save sinners. Amen.